If you would uh, get your Bibles, or if you don't have a Bible, there should be one there in the pew with you. You can look up the gospel in the Gospel of Mark, Matthew, and then Mark in the New Testament. We're going to be reading the last part of chapter 4, verses 33 through 41. Let's take a few moments to pray and ask the Lord to bless the reading of His Word. Our gracious Father, we come before You now and ask that by Your Spirit, this word might speak to us through the person of Jesus Christ. That we would hear, that we would see, and that you would give us the gift of faith that we might believe, put into action, what's been revealed in this text to us this morning. Lord, we thank you and praise you and worship you because you have cared so much for us that you have given us a testimony of your deeds and your care for us, your people. We ask all these things in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. This is God's word. With many such parables, he spoke the word to them as they were able to hear it. He did not speak to them, that is the crowd, without a parable, but privately to his own disciples he explained everything. On that day when evening had come, he said to them, Let us go across to the other side. And leaving the crowd, they took him with them in the boat, just as he was. And other boats were with him. And a great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking into the boat, so the boat was already filling. But he was in the stern, asleep on the cushion. And they woke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? And he awoke and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Shut up, be still. And the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. And he said to them, Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? And they were filled with great fear and said to one another, Who then is this, that even the wind and the sea obey him? The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God endures forever. Amen. Please be seated. I know some of you are already upset because I said shut up instead of peace. (laughs) The Greek says shut up, not peace. And so we'll talk about that in a few moments. But um, I want us to look. And, and, and begin to consider this passage this morning. As we look at this passage, I want you to think about this. I want us to go back and understand. God created a world that was defined by this word, which we, we know Jewish people say to one another, but it's kind of like aloha in, for Hawaiians. We don't really give much attachment to what that word means anymore. It's just they say aloha when they greet you. They say aloha when you leave. Jewish people often say shalom when, you, when they greet you. They say shalom when you leave. And that's kind of just, we attach that more to their cultural nuances than the theology that lies behind that word. And I want to, for a brief moment, take that word. We tend to translate that word peace. But it means so much more than just a sense of peace. The idea of shalom is not just a sense of personal well-being, although it does include that, that you have a sense of wholeness. But it is an understanding that everything literally is right in the world. Everything. To say shalom is the same idea as as the idea that God's kingdom has come in its fullness. And everything that that encompasses is here. Do you understand what shalom means? It means that the whole universe is set right. It functions the way it's supposed to. When, we're at, when God created the heavens and the earth and filled the earth and everything was in its fullness and Adam and Eve stood in the garden, there was shalom. Everything was as it was supposed to be. 
There was no error. There was no flaw. It was beautiful. It was whole. It was well. And they functioned in a world where they trusted God and His Word implicitly. That was what was true. That was what was right. Now we know what happened. They ceased to do that. And the fall came. And what we need to understand is that sin is much more than merely, not to say when I say merely that somehow this is a small thing, but it is not simply that people don't do the best they can or that people sometimes fail to do the right thing or they don't do the things they ought to do or they've been commanded to do. Sin is much greater than that. Sin has cosmic effect. The reason why there are such rampant tornadoes ripping across the Midwest right now is because of sin. That's not necessarily because of any one particular group of people's sin. It's not that people in Oklahoma and Arkansas and Tennessee are more wicked than other parts of the country any more than New Orleans is the blackest city in the world and that's why a hurricane or that the Gulf Coast of Mississippi is... We know that sin... Sin has caused this world to be out of order. And we're perpetuators of sin. And so we see that sin is a real problem. And what that has produced in people is a sense of desiring for stability, desiring for control, desiring to have some way of maintaining order in a world that is more chaotic than it is orderly, at least to our everyday experience. And we know that the sun rises, the sun sets, the stars come out at night. Seasons come and go. So there is order, there is structure. God has not abandoned this planet to the full effect of sin. Praise God for that. But we know in our day-to-day lives that relationships are out of kilter. The economy right now has many people upset. And I think it's a timely place that we arrive in Mark with the disciples in this storm and seeing the reality of what it's like to live in a world where there is no shalom, where wholeness and well-being seems to be far, far away and the effects of sin are all around them. Well, let's begin to look at what happens here and what I want to kind of begin to look at is the fact that in this story, what we see and what we've been talking about all the way through the Gospel of Mark is the fact that This lack of wholeness is being addressed by Jesus. As we consider the real Jesus, we're starting to look at him and see that the whole issue that mankind, humanity, and this world are facing, we see Jesus addressing. We see him healing. We see him casting out demons. We see him showing that he has the ability to deal with the effects of sin in our person, the effects of the spiritual realm on our person, i.e. demon possession. But in this passage, we see something really profound because, you know, we might look at people and say, well, you know, that doctor is incredible and he heals that person. Or we might look at a particular spiritual counselor who's been able to help someone who seemed to be crazy and, and out of control and medication. But what do you do with someone who has the power 
to control the universe. See, at this particular juncture, what Mark is drawing us into is saying, I showed you what Jesus can do to a human being. Now I want you to just begin to show you and pull back in some ways the real power that's being displayed here. Because it ultimately ends in that question, right? Who is this that even the, the wind and the sea obey him? And we're going to come back to that question. But I want us to begin to look at the power that's being displayed here and what's happening here. The first thing I want us to look at in this passage is that Jesus' power is historical. That's part of the thing that's really powerful in this. This is not the first time in the Bible we see this kind of power displayed. We have creation itself, right? The power to separate the waters, the waters above and the waters below. We have the power to create dry land and separate that water from dry land. So in creation, we see the power to control the creation. We also know that under the flood of Noah, who controlled that flood from start to finish? God did. He brought the storm. He took away the storm. We know that the Red Sea, who controlled the water? Everyone know the whole history of that story? I'm not sure we always do. You know, sometimes we, Cecil B. DeMille does us no favors with his uh, Charlton Heston and, uh, and, you know, the notion of raising up this, his hands and the sea parting. And it's really great cinema. I mean, I, I love watching it. It's awesome. It's totally fictitious, and you need to know that. When it tells us that an east wind blew all night to part the Red Sea, they were in the west. Where that wind started to blow was on the east side, and it blew across to them. Now, can you think what those Israelites were feeling? You're here. The greatest army in the world is right here. There's a pillar of cloud in between you and them, or a pillar of flame, rather, in the evening, night. And all night, a wind's blowing, and you're watching way over there the sea start to part. But it didn't part in front of them. It parted on the other side. The notion here is, is that God's power is displayed in God's terms the way God chooses to display it. You start to see the theme that's running throughout the Bible. Who's in control of the storm? The king of all creation. That's who's in control of the storm, of the wind, of the sea. He's the king. And so when you see that kind of power show up, you ought to take notice. Because it doesn't happen all the time, but when it does happen, you know it's not human beings that wield that kind of power. But this power is rooted in history. And we see it right here in this text. We see that power show up. And so we begin to see the historicity of this power. But it's not just that aspect of history I want you to look at. It's also the fact that people have a tendency to look at the Gospels and, and treat them like they're some kind of fanciful story or these are Jesus' followers. And there's always a skeptic or two anytime we're talking about the Gospels. And I want you to notice something literarily that's, that's fascinating about the Gospel is the fact that it tells us things that really have nothing to do, if this is just a legend or a fable, why put these details in? And, and you might say, well, because that's how you tell a good story. That's how you tell a good story in the 21st century. That's not how you told a good story back then. Legends were basically, here are the way it went down. Here are all the mighty deeds. All the superfluous side things were left out. That was irrelevant. That wasn't telling a good story. But here in the Gospel of Mark, we have an account that seems like someone was standing right there in the boat watching these events take place and taking note of peculiar things that seem irrelevant to the whole story, i.e. this. 
And leaving the crowd, they took him with them in the boat, just as he was. Well, why is that relevant? You know, so they, so he didn't go back to shore, so he didn't get provisions, so he didn't do it. They just took him as he was. Well, great, but how does that help the story move along? How does it help the story move along that there are other boats around them? What difference does that make? Who cares? I mean, isn't the story really about the disciples and the boat and Jesus is... But here you have this little side item. Why well, tell you that Jesus is asleep on an oar's cushion in the, in the stern of the boat? Why well, tell you that information other than this is somebody who, as they're recording a historical event that took place, they're remembering, and they're going, oh, yeah, and you know there was, you know how a story gets told when you're telling someone about something that's happened to you. You'll always tell some side item that seems absolutely to have nothing to do with the story. It doesn't help the story move all along. But it's important to you because you were there. And it adds meaning to you because you remember it. So what we have here is a historical story that's being told to us that displays the power of God, this story of God's power being unleashed on the Sea of Galilee. So as I said before, we see that Jesus wields this power, the same power that we have seen throughout the Bible. Now that leads us into the second point, which is this is personal power. And I want you to understand what I mean by that. The disciples have an expectation. They obviously wake Jesus up and expect him to do something. I don't think they expect him to do what he did, though. You know, they say, teacher, they're expecting him to get up and come up with a plan. We're sinking. The boat's filling. You're the wise Messiah. I want you to kind of think about this. These guys are basically looking and saying, this is not how the biblical story goes, right? I mean, when you have the prophet... The sea parts. The storm is not... You know, we don't go through storms when you've got God's anointed one with you. It's supposed to be smooth sailing. So can you imagine in some ways the bewilderment that these guys have? The other thing is, is that normally when flood waters and storms come to attack somebody, it's because they've done bad stuff. Don't you see? The disciples are obeying Jesus. He told them, let's go to the other side. Lord, what's the problem here? We're the good guys. We're doing good stuff. We're doing what you told us to do. We're taking you to the other side of the sea. And this mega storm, and I want you to get very clear. People will say, well, storms blew up on the Sea of Galilee. It was a very violent sea. That is totally true. But the language of the Greek is trying, and the fact that these men were experienced sailors, it's not like they'd never seen a storm before. They they got it, and somehow they'd survived fishing for years before they met Jesus on the Sea of Galilee. So this was no ordinary storm. This was a storm of biblical proportions. (laughs) Okay? I want us to realize what was happening here. And they were scared to death. They were afraid of perishing. These were not you and me out in a boat. These were seasoned sailors. And they were scared. And they wanted the Messiah to stand up and do something or give them some direction or help them. At least least get a bucket. Don't sleep. Get a bucket and throw some water out. Do something to help, Lord. Now I want you to kind of have that idea in hand. The storm's raging around them. They're freaked out. They want Him to get up and help them or give them some instructions. And what does He do? He stands and goes, shut up, be still. And the text doesn't say that Jesus invoked God and said, Oh Lord, the creator of everything in the world, 
It says, he stood up and said, shut up, be still. Personal power. Not power he's getting from somebody else. Power he has himself. His power. He's using his power and saying to the sea, you have no authority here. You're not the master. I am. Do you see how powerful that is? And do you see how amazing that would be to his disciples to see? How incredible it would be for them. The third thing I want us to see in this text about the power is that it's a cosmic power. One of the reasons why in the Bible when we see things like wind and sea or we hear about things you know, like the heavens and the earth, they're, also, they're called mirrorisms. And what that's really trying to say is it's, it's, it's encompassing a whole lot of everything into those two words. And so the idea here is, is that this is actually discussing the fact that if you can control the wind and the sea, you actually have control over the elements of nature. And if you have that, then you have cosmic power. You have the ability to change not just the weather, but everything. You control it. It listens to you. It obeys you in every way. And how, why do I say that? Well, part of what I want you to see in this text is, and I wish that we'd almost have the Greek laid out here more in English in this particular passage because it would help us. One of the things I want you to understand is as we look at this text is it tells us that there blew up a mega storm. I think in most of our translations it says a great storm. But, you know, we like the word mega. So let's use it here. It says a mega storm grew up. When Jesus said to be quiet and be still, it tells us that a mega calm came. Now, I've already told you that the storm was not your usual run-of-the-mill storm. It was way outside the paradigm that these men had ever experienced. And the calm that came was so noticeable that the language they used is it was a mega calm. It was like nothing we'd ever seen before. It's like, I don't know how many of you have ever water skied, but I kind of, this is what I thought as I read it, is that mega calm, it's like that meant the water was perfectly glass. And you can just see that motorcraft boat coming across it, and you're out there whipping on that slalom. I mean, that's what I get that idea. It's just a perfect, serene. But this is on a sea where the waves are always undulating. Perfectly calm, glass, water, no movement. Calm. See, what's being said there is there was a sense of shalom that permeated the place. I'm not saying that waves breaking is a result of sin, by the way. I'm just saying that there was a sense of complete calm and peace and rest. Kind of like we have right now. And because of that, their response is to have a mega fear, the text tells us. They were afraid when they thought they were going to die. Now they were mega afraid. Mega storm, mega calm created a mega fear. These men were really afraid now. What are we dealing with here? This isn't just a God that's got power over, over healing of people or he can tell a good story and explain it to us. This isn't just one who said, well, you're part of God's family and you're connected to me and I'm the Messiah. They're having a whole definition of who this really is. This isn't just a man who's really in touch with God. 
we've got something else on our hands. And we weren't anticipating that, and we're freaked out. We're overwhelmed. And see, this is the thing I want you to begin to get about the real Jesus, men and women. Too often, we tend to have a view of Jesus, which is this. When Jesus gets here, we're going to feel so much better. But is it sometimes when Jesus shows up, it's overwhelming. His presence undoes us. It bewilders us more than all the circumstances around us. Because we realize that this isn't one who is having to face the things the way we do. He controls those things. And see, don't you see what it starts to kind of expose in us, men and women, when we start to look at the cosmic power of Jesus? Don't you see what it starts to expose in us? It starts to expose in us that often we'd much rather have to deal with the fears of this life than to really have to come and deal with the presence of Jesus. See, it kind of works like this for some of us. It's the idea that, you know, Lord, ask of me anything you want. Never say that, please. Never say that. God has a habit of answering that prayer rapidly. Lord, ask of me anything you want. And then he does. And what do you do? Oh, I'd really rather have, I'd really rather deal with the chaos than deal with the order that you bring. Why? Because see, when it's quiet, men and women, when it's quiet, it's just you and God. There's no music playing. There's no TV to watch. There's no internet to peruse. It's just you and Jesus. And He's holy, and you're not. He's powerful, and you're not. It exposes everything about us and our sinfulness and our humanity that we're not like God. And it's overwhelming. Now, if the story ended there, we'd, be in, we'd probably be in the right place to say, let's head for the hills, but it doesn't end there. What I want us to see then is that this power was a revealing power, as I've just started to allude to. As I said before, we want, in some sense, a controllable and predictable life, and Jesus exposes that desire. These guys, in some ways, expected things to kind of go. They were going to sail across. You know, sure, a storm or two could come up. No big deal. But we weren't prepared for a megastorm. See, don't you see what the Lord was doing in this moment when that megastorm comes up? What he really was exposing, he was exposing their lack of faith. See, you ask him, where's your faith? Where is it? And see, if you just think faith is, I know the catechism. I know not just the Westminster Confession of Faith, but I know a couple other confessions of faith too. And I know the Heidelberg Catechism as well. I know the creeds. I've gotten a gold star for the last 10 years because I've attended Sunday school perfectly. I go to a Christian school and we take Bible class. I've listened to all the chapel speakers and I take notes. You see, it's not talking about that. That's not faith. A person may only know this much, Jesus is Lord. And if they live on that, that's faith. They take what they know and they begin to live it out. That's the reality of faith. Faith is really believing. 
what God has revealed to you. It's not just merely understanding it. And too often, what we want to do is take our understanding and say, that's faith. I understand these things about. And see, the disciples are being exposed. They do understand who Jesus is, but they don't really trust Him. They don't really believe in Him. Not yet. Not the way they're going to have to as they proceed forward. But I want you to notice that. I want you to see what that begins to tell us. Maybe it begins to help us. Notice that Jesus has patience with these men. This is the same men he said, you're my true family because you do the will of God. That's my true family. And these men around me, this is my true family. And here they are on the boat, scared to death. And what you're going to see Mark do over the next month is he's going to begin to expose the fact that these men aren't going to go up in their faith. They seem to get less faith. They seem to do things that are more hard to understand. And that might start to give us an understanding of Jesus' patience with his people. It might give us some motivation to think about how patient we are with his people. That's a little side item we'll talk about again in just a moment. The other thing I want you to notice in this is that it draws us to a place where we begin to look at the Jonah story because we see that this is the other event that parallels with this. And I want to just take a few moments to talk about Jonah. Remember what happens. We all know the story of Jonah. We just read it. He's told to go. He doesn't want to go. He flees from the presence of the Lord. He goes down to Joppa. He gets in a boat. He goes down deep into the the hole of the boat. He tells the men, I'm fleeing from the Lord. They don't know who his God is, so they move away, and they head out to sea. Mega storm comes up. They're throwing everything they can off the boat. And it really is, sometime if you want to read it, just think about what's happening. Jonah goes down, 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 down into the boat and goes to sleep. These men are hurling everything off the boat except for the one thing they need to hurl off the boat. And that's the one thing they don't want to hurl off the boat. It's the one thing they need to hurl off the boat. It's Jonah. They're afraid. They're fearful. They throw Jonah off the boat. And there becomes a mega calm. And we're told there that they feared a great fear. A mega fear overcame them when that calm came. Seems like a very similar story. The only problem we have in this story here is that nobody goes overboard. Or do they? See, you think Mark might be setting us up? I think Mark is trying to tell us something here that we, we maybe, if we're not careful, it kind of slips in behind us. You see, this is what's happening here as we conclude this morning. The one who came and went to Nineveh. The one who didn't run away, but went to Gethsemane and cried out in tears of agony. The one who God was pleased to crush. That one is who's standing in that boat. See, Jesus ultimately is going overboard. He's ultimately going to the cross. He's ultimately not just going into the belly of a whale. He's going into the belly of the ground. Not because his life's been spared, but because it's cost him his life. You see what's happened here, and you see what the Lord is trying to expose in these disciples? You really don't understand what's going on. You don't really understand who I am 
and you don't really understand what I have to do. And see, do you understand that today? See, when you are listening to this, do you hear that question, who is this? And here's what Mark's telling you. The one who is able to control everything is the one who's going to go to the cross and die. The one who always obeyed and never doubted ever the Father's will is the one who's going to die because of all your doubts and your disobedience and your unwillingness to trust. And see, men and women, this morning, if you are a person who can say and answer the question that Mark puts on the disciples' lips, because that's what they said, but he's using it here in a powerful way for someone to say, who is this? And if you can answer, it's Jesus, the one who controls everything, you then might start to have the ability to do a few of these things. And I just want to leave you with these thoughts. You will have actually the ability to exercise faith, which is practical confidence in the divine will. Practical confidence in the divine will. Not confidence when everything is going great. Practical confidence is when everything's blowing up around you and you feel like that somehow somebody has gotten hold of a, a dynamite truck and is blowing up your world every step you take. It's right in that moment that a person of faith looks up because they see their great God, not because they're great, not because they got anything special about them, because they are people who see and know and believe that this God will never fail. Because even in storms, He's in control. He can bring shalom in the twinkling of an eye. The second thing that might lead us to is to have patience with others. See, oftentimes the reason why we're so impatient with people is because we want things to get done and get controllable and get stable and get in a place that we can figure it out and understand it. And We tend not to be very patient with people. But if we start to get a sense of who we're dealing with in Jesus and His long-suffering patience with His disciples and with us, it begins to motivate us to have patience with others, to be caring and long-suffering. Not because there's something super great about us, but because we have started to catch a taste of Jesus and His goodness. And the last thing it does for us is it enables us to practice what we know. See, faith enables us to practice what we know. Faith actually says, I know who my Jesus is, and I love Him, and therefore I'm willing to risk great dangers I'm willing to trust Him in the middle of great turmoil. And I'm willing to continue to do the right things, not to try and control Him, but because I love Him. And I want to see His will done on earth, just like it is in heaven. And I pray that as we grow this morning in our understanding of this, that it will be seen this next week in our work, in our school, and our various activities, that we will leave this place transformed. And may God make it so in our midst. Amen.